there's two important truths that I really want you to take away uh, with you this morning. And so let's take a look here at a first John here. I want to show you a couple things. Number one, I want you to see here that the word was made manifest and proclaimed. Notice what the text says here in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. As I was standing in line the other day at uh, Myers, I saw a copy of uh, Life magazine with an artist's rendering on it of, it was supposed to be Jesus. And on the front cover there, there's a, there's a picture of Jesus, and then on the title there, it says, Who do men say that I am? You know, many would say that he was a great man, some religious teacher, a good man. Some may identify him as the founder of Christianity. Some may even say correctly that he is the son of God. But they would be very hard-pressed to explain what that means. In the early church, there were false teachers abounding, and Paul wrote to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, he says, I know that after I am gone, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own group, men will arise, teaching perversions of the truth to draw away the disciples after them. Some of the most frightening words in all of the New Testament were what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 Verses 21 through 23, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These repeated warnings mean that we must be very careful to make sure that our Christian faith is true, both objectively and personally. We need to know that the testimony about Jesus Christ is genuine and not the work of spiritual con artists. And we need to know that our personal faith in Christ is genuine faith. Not the false faith that results in hearing on judgment day, I never knew you, depart from me. Because our eternal destiny is at stake. We need to know that we have the real deal, not a phony substitute. And so the aged apostle here writes in 1 John, against this backdrop of these false teachers, these influential false teachers, and he writes to help them to know that their faith was genuine and that they possessed eternal life in Jesus Christ. The church today is still under siege and under, under attack against false teachers. 
The world is confused on who Christ is because of false teachings of Jesus Christ. A very popular uh, movie and book came out uh, several years ago called The Da Vinci Code, written by Dan Brown. And it tried to say that Christianity was invented by Emperor Constantine at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 A.D., And that the whole idea of Jesus being divine, that he was 100% man and 100% God, was something that was invented. But the testimony of the manuscript evidence with John's gospel that dates back to 125 years before the Council of Nicaea clears that issue clear up with this declaration of Christ's divinity. That's why this testimony of John, the apostle, is so important. In church history, it is recorded for us about a man named Serinthius. Serinthius at this time was a Gnostic living in Ephesus. And the early church father, Polycarp, who knew John the apostle and was a disciple of him, told a story about the apostle going to bathe at the public bathhouse in Ephesus And when he learned that Serinthius was inside, John rushed out without bathing, exclaiming, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthius, the enemy of the truth, is within. Serinthius taught that Jesus was not born of a virgin, but that was the natural son of Joseph and Mary, that he was a very good and righteous man at his baptism, The Christ descended on him in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler. Jesus then proclaimed the unknown father uh, and performed miracles. And at last Christ departed from Jesus and the human Jesus suffered, died, and rose again. While the Christ remained untouched since he is a spirit being. So Serinthius separated the man Jesus from the divine Jesus. But that's not what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures teach us that Jesus was 100% man and he was 100% God. Notice these phrases in John's letter here, which really, uh, really lay claim to all of this. Look at these phrases. Which was from the beginning? Who was from the beginning? Jesus. Which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Uh, look at verse 3, he says, which we have seen and heard. And, and all of these sum up the person, the life, and the works of Jesus. Each one of these phrases declare and describe the reality that Jesus Christ came into the flesh. And notice how these phrases build on one another with this final phrase of the declaration of the proclamation of Christ. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. If we were to paraphrase what John was saying, here we could read it like this. When we set before you the gospel of Christ, the word of life, there are certain factors that must be stressed not least of which is the fact that the eternal, that which was from the beginning, that very life which was with the Father has been historically manifested. 
You may rely on our proclamation of this because we have heard him. We have seen him with our own eyes. We beheld him and our hands have even grasped him. We've touched him. But what about us? Have you heard Jesus? Actually physically heard Jesus with your own ears? Have you seen Jesus physically with your own eyes? Have you been able to actually touch Jesus and hold him, embrace him, feel him, touch him? Because we have not, does that mean that our faith is less real? Because we have not, does that mean that our relationship with him is less dynamic and personal? Do we need to hear or see or behold or grasp the historical, physical reality of God incarnate in the person of Jesus? No, we don't. Why? Listen to a few Bible passages that Jesus gave to us here. Out of John chapter 14, verses 18 through 29, Jesus says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. You have heard me say to uh, to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Because of our unique relationship and this relationship between Jesus and the Spirit, the Spirit's presence that is in us and with us is the presence of Jesus in and with us. And so if you know Christ as your Savior, if there was a time in your life when you repented of your sin and you turned to Christ, you trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, the Bible clearly teaches us that the Spirit of God has come to indwell inside of you and you have the very presence of Christ in you. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 24 says, And we know by this that he, Jesus, abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In 1 John 4, 13, it says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he is in us because he has given us of his Spirit. John chapter 20, verse 29 says, Jesus said to him, Have you believed me because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now know see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So obviously we have this manifested life and this proclamation of the Son of God. Because if you know Christ as your Savior, he indwells inside of you. And it's a reality to all of us that know Christ. Not because we had to see or hear or behold or grasp the historical Jesus, but because we have the indwelling Spirit of God who testifies of Jesus' reality. But for what purpose? What is the purpose of all that? To have Christ dwelling in us? What is the purpose of all of that? Why does this manifestation and this proclamation of Jesus matter? Well, that leads me here to my second point. That the word was made manifest and proclaimed for our fellowship and joy. Listen to what John writes here in 1 John 1, 3-4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's two awesome aspects that are a result of Christ's incarnation for the believer. Look at this. Number one, it's for our fellowship. Think about the context of which, which John was writing this in. Remember, false teachers are abounding everywhere. These false teachers had put a strain on the believers' lives. Some were led, by their, led away by their teachings. These false teachers disrupted the lives of the believers and their relationships were weakened. I cannot stress enough the importance that as, as followers of Jesus, that we make sure that we adhere to the teachings of the word of God. Because if we get off point, off of the word, just by one degree, just by one degree, we'll be so far off. So we must hold true to the teachings of the word of God. We cannot rely upon what some guy over here says or what this personality over here says. We need to believe the Bible, believe the teachings of the word, and hold to the word of God. We, the elders here at this church, have been entrusted to guard the flock from false teaching. And so our fellowship is based upon our belief in who Jesus Christ is. Fellowship with each other is possible only if we all have fellowship with the Father and the Son. You may say, well, you know, this guy is a really nice guy. I'm glad that he's a nice guy. But if he doesn't know Christ, then we really don't have fellowship with them. 
So the fellowship that we share is in an intimate closeness with each other because we believe in the manifested and declared message of the incarnation of the Son of God. Christian fellowship is a partnership grounded in the common experience of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So that's why we should have fellowship with other believers that proclaim Christ as the only way of hope and salvation. Secondly, look what he says here. It's for our joy. Notice how the fellowship with the Father and the Son is in direct connection with joy. Look what he says. He says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And that fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus. And we are writing these things about the fellowship and the, and the fact that Jesus became flesh. We're writing these things for you. Why? So that our joy may be complete. So in reality, there is no real joy apart from the message of Jesus Christ coming into the world. John chapter 17, verse 13, Jesus prayed in the garden, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. So the joy is knowing that we are in relationship with the Father and the Son. And joy is part of the Christian life. Listen to what 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 says. It says, rejoice always. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Our unique joy begins because Christ lives within us is what Galatians chapter 2.20 teaches us. Jesus tells us to rejoice because your names are written in heaven in Luke chapter 10 verse 20. And we have an intimate relationship with the one in Psalms 43.4 that calls God my exceeding joy. And in his presence according to Psalm 16.11 is the fullness of joy. But in this text, John is not just talking about having joy, but having our joy what? Complete. Notice he doesn't say your joy, but he says our joy collectively. So in this context, John is saying that our fellowship with God and one another is the source of all of our joy. As God's children, I believe that we are obligated to seek our greatest joy in him. What brings you true joy in your life? Is it your children? Is it your job? Is it your possessions? What brings you true joy in your life? If it's not founded upon Jesus and Jesus alone, then you are sadly missing and lacking true, biblical, authentic, real joy in your life. The greatest joy of all that we need is to glorify God who rescued us from our, the, the sin and our death 
and this fellowship with God that we should be having and with others are really the two main commands that Jesus gave us. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. So I encourage you, if you are a believer in Christ and your joy is not complete, I encourage you, I urge you to find your joy in Jesus. To seek out God through daily reading of the scriptures, through spending time with him in your, in your own personal relationship with him. Because you should be loving the Lord God with all your heart. And so you should be seeking out that joy through him. But not only that, but you should find joy amongst the other believers in Christ. I mean, let's face it. We turn to the person next to you. Look at him. You know what you see? You see a sinner. And because that person that is sitting next to you is a sinner, they have faults. They have problems. They're broken. And because they are broken, they're going to say things, do things to you that are going to rub you the wrong way, that are going to irritate you, that are going to offend you. But if they are a believer in Christ, you should be seeking fellowship with them. And you should be seeking out this relationship with them. You know, in a church like this, we have people from, from different backgrounds and, and different, uh, all kinds of walks of life. And it'd be silly for us to say, you know, everybody has to be like me. Or everybody has to be like you. We find our joy and our completeness because of what Jesus did for us. That he died for us, that he gave his life for us, that he paid for our sin debt. So I encourage you, find your joy in Christ. Find your joy amongst those who know Christ. Let's pray together.